Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, The Andrew Lawton Show, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where you will, well, if you saw the show yesterday, you're aware of why I'm here, and that is to, in part, report on the trial of Mark Stein, the legendary Canadian commentator and author who is standing trial for allegations of defaming a renowned climate scientist that has, well, we'll get to all that in a few moments. I'll give the the trial update shortly, and it was actually a bit of a barn burner in court yesterday. But I, I want to begin talking about this story, which is international, but certainly has come to Canada's doorstep here. Now, I, I'm going to try not to bog you down in the really lengthy, lengthy history on this, but I, I'm probably going to have to dip in and out of that as we go on. But at its core, it's about an organization called UNRWA, which is a United Nations refugee agency specifically in Palestinian territories or for Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. Now, UNRWA has been operating outside of the norm for United Nations refugee agencies because this is one that deals with a very specific region. It's been situated there for many years and has always been fraught with challenges. One of the big reasons is in Gaza, there's no such thing as aid to Gazans that doesn't in some way have to get filtered through Hamas. And this is one of the big problems where a lot of humanitarian aid is in fact supporting Hamas because I've, I, I mean, either intentionally or unintentionally because Hamas is diverting resources and so on. This is not new and it shouldn't even be controversial to point this out. Now, where we get into challenges with UNRWA is that UNRWA is staffed by locals. I think it has about 30,000 employees. Many of these locals are not just these, you know, happy-go-lucky aid workers who are there because they want to believe that uh, the Palestinian people deserve a little bit of foreign and international support. No, they are supporters of the very problems and the people causing those problems in these regions. Now, one of the most extreme examples of this is an allegation from Israel that a dozen UNRWA staffers were involved or complicit in the October 7th attacks. Now, according to the allegations from Israel, uh, seven of these 12 literally were part of the invasion. They literally crossed into Israel to participate in the attacks. I think it was, I've seen conflicting uh, evidence here. I think two were participants in kidnappings. One participated in a kidnap, another helped steal a soldier's body. So these are pretty extreme accusations against staff from UNRWA that, again, go well beyond what anyone would expect from an aid worker, some humanitarian aid worker that is also participating in a massive terrorist attack that killed about 1,300 people. So all of this is to say we should be putting UNRWA under the microscope. Now, none of this is new information if you go beyond October 7th. There have been issues going back decades about UNRWA's ties to Hamas. This is why Stephen Harper and the Conservatives in Canada were so critical of this and decided to cut off the organization, although Justin Trudeau decided to go all in on reinstating and bolstering it. So we fast forward to today. You had the international community making demands. I should back that up not the international community, but people internationally, making demands to cut funding off. Now, it took Canada a few days, but eventually the federal government admitted it would be pausing 
funding to UNRWA. Pausing. Well, as we learned yesterday, that pause isn't actually a pause at all. There is a report that I initially saw from journalist Helen Buzetti, who writes in, in French but translated to English, uh, that Ottawa is not actually holding back any planned funds at all. What's happening is Canada has provided an additional $60 million to the Palestinian people, uh, part of which went through UNRWA, uh, but this money has already been paid so saying we're pausing it isn't actually a pause at all because there was no new money committed. Uh, the next payment isn't scheduled until March and April of this year. And at that point, we don't know if the government is going to be pausing that or going through with it because they could say, well, we've done our investigation and that's that. So uh, there is a, a question to the government about whether that payment will go through or not. But even so, the federal government's stated intention here is to pause that funding. So let's just drill down on the stated intention because the response to this from people on the left is that, okay, UNRWA may have been helping terrorists, but how dare you cut off their funding? I, I'm not making this up. Heidi Matthews, who is a, uh, an assistant professor of law at Osgoode, that's over at York University. She's very well educated. She has a Harvard degree. She says, since I can't rely on my government to use my tax dollars to fund the life-saving humanitarian services provided to Palestine refugees by UNRWA, today I made my first personal donation and she links so that you can donate uh, yourself if you're interested in in supporting evidently terrorism uh, and then we also had heather mcpherson who's a canadian member of parliament she's with the new democrats uh, she gave this impassioned plea in the house of commons about this the same day that the icj ruled that there is a risk of genocide in gaza the liberals paused funding to unrwa which is a lifeline for millions of innocent palestinians people will lose their lives and unbelievably the conservative leader has accused 30,000 UNRWA humanitarian workers of being terrorists he does not deserve to lead we support an investigation into the 12 former staff but defunding UNRWA is collective punishment and it is illegal when will the liberals stop abandoning Palestinians I like how it's, by the way, this little afterthought that, oh, yeah, yeah, no, of course we support an investigation, but it's always the but you have to pay attention to. And uh, in the case of Heather McPherson, we're talking about a woman here who has, as her first reaction, her first reaction to news that this agency was supporting terrorism is to say, well, I'm going to make a personal donation as well. Because like Heidi Matthews, Heather McPherson is ponying up some personal money for that. Now, I certainly hope she's not going to bill that to her office account. I have no evidence one way or another. If it is a personal donation, it should be a personal donation. Now, uh, there are, believe it or not, laws in this country against uh, funding terrorism and funding terror. Now, I, I'm not going so far as to say that a dollar donated to UNRWA is a dollar donated to terrorism. But we should certainly look in the mirror if we are motivated to donate to an organization that has literally been accused for years, not just for days, for years of being complicit, if not outright supportive 
of a lot of terrorist actions in the region. Uh, there was a, a moment back in, I think it was 2004, where it was literally UNRWA vehicles that were being used as the getaway after a bombing had taken place against Israelis. So uh, this is not new, but it is an extreme allegation that should be taken very seriously. And it's rather despicable that you have so many on the progressive left that say, all right, well, I want to keep donating to that. So there are two options here, if you just want to distill it into crude terms. Either A, you think Israelis are liars, or B, you believe the allegation but don't really care about it. Now, I suspect that some of them fit into either camp. I mean, even Heather McPherson's comment there was basically, well, yeah, we should investigate, but, you know, we can't you know, label them all with one brush. He took aim at conservative leader Pierre Polyev's response to all this because he was unflinching about this when he spoke about it. Trudeau's been funding foreign terrorists and dictators, calling it aid. He gave money to UNRWA, right? We warned, we warned what would happen if you gave money to UNRWA. We cut the funds for UNRWA when we were in government. And what happened? Justin Trudeau funded the same organization whose members helped carry out the genocidal October 7th attack. Justin Trudeau should be ashamed of himself. I thought that was a very strong note. And whether you like or dislike Pierre Polyev, he's been incredibly unflinching when it comes to use that word again when it comes to this issue, as former Prime Minister Stephen Harper was as well. Now, I know that a lot of you, and this comes up on this show from time to time whenever I do talk about foreign policy, a lot of you are minded to say that this has nothing to do with this. Why do we even care? Why do we have to pay attention? Now, I'm sympathetic to that argument, by the way. If you say, you know what, I don't want to get involved in a foreign conflict. But I think there are two things to say about that. Number one, a foreign conflict does not apply to a situation in which terrorists stormed into a sovereign country and targeted civilians. This is not a state versus state war. This is something very different than that. It's a terrorist attack, and I wouldn't particularly like it if other countries looked at 9-11 after September 11th, 2001, and said, oh, well, that's just some foreign conflict, doesn't affect us, if you're able to provide aid and support. Uh, secondly, when we're talking about funding UNRWA, this is a Canadian problem, because it's the Canadian government that has been in part fueling UNRWA and funding this organization. So it is very much a Canadian story when you're talking about the Canadian government's response to this. And the Canadian government, uh, it took them some time, but eventually they did the right thing, it looked like. But as we see when you look at the details, they may not actually be at all. So I would say very much keep the pressure up on that. As I mentioned at the outset of the show and as we delved into a fair bit yesterday, I am right now in Washington, D.C. This is why I'm, I'm not doing the show from the regular digs, but from a generic, uh, no, actually, it's, I, usually it's a generic nondescript hotel. Uh, this one, I guess I'm in a funky little chair that makes it a little less uh, nondescript, but I didn't choose the hotel. Anyway, uh, we are in Washington, D.C. this week. Because Mark Stein, who is a long friend of mine, and I've worked with him on a number of projects, including the upcoming Mark Stein Cruise, which I know a few of you are going to be on, and I'll be speaking on that. Uh, but I've known him for many years, so I'm not going to pretend that I'm coming into this thinking, oh, maybe he's in the right, maybe. No, I think he is absolutely in the right. And I wanted to bring you a little bit up to speed on this because we, we danced around some of the key themes yesterday when I was chatting with Phelan McAleer about this. But 
this goes back 12 years. Michael Mann is the creator of the hockey stick graph. The graph that we showed yesterday shows that, well, there's been like no global warming for a thousand years. And then uh, once humans start doing things, boom, it, it shoots up. And one of the reasons this has been such a, a useful tool is because it is a tool that shows drastic human reasons to blame humanity effectively for global warming. This was the hockey stick graph that Al Gore made famous in An Inconvenient Truth, which was so inconvenient it might not have even been true. And Michael Mann has become a, a climate celebrity because of his work on this. Now, what this means for Canadians, it's the document, the graph that was used to justify uh, Paul Martin trying to get everyone into the Kyoto Accord. It's been at the core of a lot of government's responses to the climate discussion. And there are significant challenges with it. For starters, he presumes that he can come up with global temperatures for any point in time, even contemporary periods, but also global temperatures going back hundreds of years. And uh, the methodology of this has been challenged by eminent scientists who, by the way, believe that global warming is a problem, but don't believe in Michael Mann's version of it. Now, Mark Stein, in true Mark Stein fashion, called this graph fraudulent. He looked at it. He looked at the raw data. He's not a scientist, but he still deduced from what he was reading that this was not a valid piece of science. And he, as commentators are allowed to do, especially in a country with First Amendment protections, as the United States has, wrote about this. And he wrote that uh, this was a fraud. And he had been writing about this for years. And when it really seemed to attract Michael Mann's ire was when there was a pair of blog posts. One was written by a, a gentleman named Rand Simberg. The other was written by Mark Stein back, again, 2012, we're talking about here. And it was at the time that there had been major controversy at Penn State where Michael Mann worked involving Jerry Sandusky and the school's cover-up of Jerry Sandusky, the athletic director's uh, sexual assault. Now, I mean, without getting even more into the weeds than I already have, Penn State had investigated Mann, not for anything to do with anything remotely to do with uh, what Sandusky did, but for his academic research and process. And the reality was there was an accusation that Penn State was committed to covering up both situations. And, and that was really what Rand Simberg and Mark Stein were talking about. But of course, in man's view, he's like, oh, you've called me a child molester. And I mean, look, there was one great line from Mark's column that, uh, and by great, I just mean notable line from it, where he says that he tortured and molested data <laughs> instead of children. Now, this is a bit of a... Uh, perhaps uh, controversial or edgy thing to say, but it was clear that he was talking about two very different things, what Sandusky did and what Mann did, and he was linking it by talking about Penn State and some very legitimate issues with that school. Now, a lot of people would listen to that. I mean, this is a jury trial. It's possible the jury is listening to that and thinking, okay, like, yeah, maybe I agree or disagree. Why has this been 12 years of litigation to get to the point where we're sitting in a courtroom talking about it? And I think that's a, a very valid question. But it's also a free speech issue. It's a climate change issue. It's an academic freedom issue. It's all of these things. Do you have a right to criticize and diverge very starkly from someone with letters after their name who's been feted by governments, who parties with Leo DiCaprio, do you have a right to criticize them? 
And if so, what are the limits of that? So uh, that's been why I've been, I've been interested in this case and also my knowledge of the case because I've, I've known Mark for so long and I've followed this work and I've read this and, and I've read his book on it and I haven't read man's book in full. I've, I've read parts of it. But uh, one of the things I, I wanted to bring up that came up yesterday in trial, which was quite interesting, was how little Michael Mann has suffered. And this is, I think, the fascinating part of it, because to prove that you have been defamed in court, you don't just need to say this person said something mean about me or said something defamatory about me. You have to prove that the blow landed, to put a colloquial spin on it. You have to prove that you suffered damages. Now, look, there, there is a whole legal test, and I, I'm not an American lawyer. I'm not a Canadian lawyer either, for that matter, but there's a whole legal test. But one of the most important things is you have to prove that you were harmed. And uh, there was a, a quite stunning display in court yesterday where uh, one of the lawyers uh, who was representing Rand Simberg, not uh, Mark, Mark's actually self-representing. So one of Rand Simberg's lawyers went up and, and pointed, and actually Mark did this as well when he was cross-examining Michael Mann, and he pointed out how pretty much every single metric financially has gone up in his life. His salary is higher. His awards are greater. Uh, the number of book royalties he's cashing in are higher. The number of parties he's going to where he's meeting with celebrities and heads of state and heads of government is higher. He was at Penn State, which is a decent school, but it's a, a state university in Pennsylvania at the beginning of this controversy. Now he's at the University of Pennsylvania, which is in the Ivy League. So for a guy who claims he was irreparably defamed, Every part of his life seems to be in better standing than it was at the outset of this. The only damages, the only damages he's been able to possibly point to are what he says amount to lost grants. Now, grants wouldn't have gone to him. They would have gone to his university. But even so, he can't even say this was the reason. He can't say, and I lost this grant funding because of what they said. This is a guy who has picked a lot of fights with a lot of people over the years. So even if these grant losses were connected to uh, defamation he had endured, which is dubious at, at best, uh, there's no guarantee it came down to the specific defamation at issue from Mark Stein and Rand Simberg. And look, for a case that's been going on a dozen years, and I'm coming in at week three of this trial, this has been going on for two weeks, I kind of would have assumed that there had been a more compelling case to be made about where the defamation was. Now, again, the jury is the one who's going to decide this. It's, uh, to me, that seems risky to have a defamation trial decided by a jury because they're not necessarily minded to adhere to the law. They might just come down to who they like better at the end. I don't know. I think it will depend on how specific and how clear those jury instructions are. But my goodness, it was baffling to me that after so many years and such a, an expensive claim, of defamation. I mean, it's expensive for all involved. The lawyers are making big money on this. Now, Michael Mann testified that he has not had to spend any of his own personal money. So uh, that's an interesting question about who is funding his legal representation. But after all that, he still can't point to anything that he lost.
which is very, very important. Now, in keeping with the climate theme, at least peripherally today, I wanted to take this opportunity to launch a new series we are going to be doing on The Andrew Lawton Show over the next couple weeks. Now, we were going to be doing this anyway. It is a series that takes aim at the so-called Just Transition which is a global initiative. It comes from the United Nations and the Paris Accord, but it's one that has very much been embraced by the Canadian government with gusto. And it is an initiative that presupposes we need to transition away from the oil and gas sector. Now, they try to put it in nice terms and say, well, it's a just transition because we want it to be just for the people who work in that sector. But all of the people who work in that sector that I've spoken to have a very different perspective on what that means. So I wanted to actually take the next couple of weeks, and we've partnered with our friends at the Modern Miracle Network to make this happen, to share interviews I have done with leaders in the oil and gas sector to talk about what they're doing, to talk about why the just transition is in fact an unjust transition, and to talk about the side of the oil and gas sector in this country we never actually get to hear from, which is the positive side. Yeah, it's not the side the media and the government want to talk about. So this this is the first part. It's a bit of a primer for the Unjust Transition series. My interview with Michael Binion, who is the head of the Modern Miracle Network, but also the head of Questair Energy. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm sitting down with Michael Binion. Now, you wear a, a number of different hats. Normally, I, I speak to you in your capacity as executive director of the Modern Miracle Network, but we do things a little bit differently today, I thought. You're also the CEO of Questair, which is one of Canada's many successful companies in the energy sector. It, uh, whatever hat you're wearing, it's always good to talk to you. Well, thank you. And I, I think you've even seen me in the cowboy hat. Yes. Uh, yeah. All sorts of uh, get-ups, I, I believe. Well, I, let's talk about, I mean, we've been discussing the just transition with, with you and, and some of your colleagues while we've been here, but I, let me just first ask what your company is doing in this space that's a bit unique right now. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the compliment that we're one of Canada's many successful energy companies, but we're far less successful than we think, than we believe we deserve to. Uh, we started our company as a, as a high-risk exploration company looking for giant gas fields. Mm. And unexpectedly, although, you know, of course, it's, it's like it's like I say to my friends, when I sink a 60-foot putt, they tell me I'm lucky. I said, well, I was aiming at it. Um, so we were aiming at finding a giant field, but we did. Mm -hmm. It's the only giant shale field that one company found and also captured, and it's the Utica Shale in Quebec. Mm. And so it's a, it's a multi-billion dollars, so at 25 TCF of gas. It would be like Churchill Falls for 70 years. Mm. That's how big it is. And we've been stymied from developing it uh, due to uh, Quebec politics. Uh, it's been an effective ban so for 13 years. I say I always thought the hard part was fighting it, and now I realize producing it's even harder. So we'll talk about those issues in a moment. But I mean, one of the recurring themes that comes up here is that the demand exists. The demand doesn't go away. All of the problems that are the barriers that are put up by the activists are, are trying to limit supply. But the demand is is growing and and certainly is is maintaining. So. 
when you're prevented from unlocking these resources, as you say, all it means is that some other supplier that is not as diligent at following these regulations and complying with the laws and the spirit of the law, they're the beneficiaries of it. Yeah, that, that's certainly, a, a, I think, an important argument that we've made just like when it's so true of our company and our discovery in Quebec. And, and this was a flummoxing thing to find, and, and I'm not sure people really realize it, but I've had... Uh, I've had people. I, I, I've had dinner with Stephen Gilbo. Mm -hmm. I've had I've had uh, Patrick Bonat, uh, the head of Greenpeace in Quebec, uh, World Wildlife Fund, Suzuki. I've had them all tell me, as, as I said, that we, if we were to produce local gas, it would be a material reduction in Canadian emissions. Mm -hmm. And in the end, they said we don't care, because we want Quebec to meet its targets, and your project is going to increase Quebec emissions even as it reduces Canadian emissions. So I, th this is something that I learned in 2011, 2012, years before the cancellation of Gateway. This is why we've been, I think, at the leading edge of these discussions, corporately and politically, is because, it, it would be because of under realizing early that they don't, that it's all about meeting targets and, and I guess to some extent virtue signaling rather than making a real difference. That argument for us in Quebec, if we produce local gas, we emit like a really large reduction in Canadian emissions. It's true for the world too. If Canada produces more, the world emissions go down because we're more environmentally uh, efficient. You emphasized the word stated when you said the, the stated objectives. What did you mean by that? Well, in part this, the stated objection, the objective is to reduce global emissions. And yet they're against projects that would do that. Because at the end of the day, they want to be able to say, I met a local target. And they don't, and, the, and seemingly don't, it's not a priority, or I don't want to say they don't care, but I, they, it doesn't seem to be a priority. But the globe's emissions would go down. If Canada would just produce more aluminum or more mm -hmm. gas or more LNG, the global emissions would go down, even though Canada's might go up a bit. But is it a global problem? Are we supposed to be? acting locally and thinking globally, but I don't, when I say stated, that's because I'm not so sure that they really want to think globally in their local actions. The, the government has said that the just transition, I mean, they presented it basically as a fait accompli, as though they're already going to do this. It's just a matter of mitigating the harms and effects on, you know, jobs to people that are currently working in this space. Have you seen anything from their proposals that have been put forward so far that suggests there will be a soft landing for the scores of Canadians that will be out of work if this dream comes to fruition. Yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine. I mean, I, I'm, I'm chairman of a, of a, of a Greek services company and we we're over in Papua New Guinea. I mean, we're, we're giving amazing jobs to people. We, we literally take people out of grass huts in the jungle and it's hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. It's true. We're in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. We bring people out of the jungle. We teach them how to drive a truck, how to run a crane, ultimately over 15 years. We brought them up to the point where they're the the driller, which is the word for the supervisor, mm -hmm. manager of the entire brig operation. These are five hundred million dollar operations, and we've got local indigenous Papagaini people running these things. These are these are incredible jobs. I, I just can't even imagine telling those people in Papua New Guinea that now got themselves out of grass hut grass hut in the jungle, or a Canadian here, go from your hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand dollar job running a rig and go sweep snow off the mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense. I, I mean, to talk about the Canadian context here for a moment, with Indigenous 
concerns. And that there are some legitimate Indigenous communities that have concerns about this. But I find oftentimes Indigenous issues are elevated by activists that would be opposed to the projects in general. And I think that's, I'd say, true of, of Quebec. You done a lot to forge relationships with indigenous communities that really want these projects, really want yeah. this development. Yeah. In our, in our corporate, uh, you know, I, I, I do this a lot in, in sort of advocacy and, and discussions around the, our, you know, our industry and our country in general. Mm-hmm. But my company, I, I, one thing I'm proud of is that what we do at Quester is fully, fully aligned with that. I have uh, an MOU with the with the Wolanek in in Quebec. We have uh, a, a cooperation agreement with the U Tribe in Utah, where we mm-hmm. we've got um, we we've got an, uh, uh, working on an agreement here in Calgary for a new project. We, we and and of course the work that we've done in Papua New Guinea with Indigenous people, I think, is is world is 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 world um, mm-hmm. um, uh, leading, right? Uh, so we, you know, we we have walked our talk on that, and I'm a, I'm a real believer that uh, we need to partner with our First Nations uh, for so many reasons. Um, one, practical, uh, they're mm-hmm. they're on the land. Um, two, just it's the right thing to do. It's wrong that we have more people in Canada on Lizard. We have mm-hmm. we've done so little effect. We've done a lot to try to change it. We've done very little that's effective in changing it. To go back to Questair, knowing what you know now about the regulations and the hurdles and the bureaucracy and the the barriers, would you have done it if you were to go back and had that chance to do it again? Yeah. It's interesting. I was at a friend's cabin in, in Quebec at the lake, and, and I was explaining what we were doing with our gas field and so on and so forth. And, and he says, you know, Michael, if you want to do something new in Quebec, you've got to start when you're young. And I said to him, because it's going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. And I said, you don't understand. I did start when I was young. Um, yeah, so when I go back, and it's it's been a fascinating experience. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I say to people, I mean, if there hadn't been a moratorium at Quebec, I'd never want to learn French. But I now speak semi-fluent French. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have never really learned about how Quebecers look at the history of Canada different than Alberta. Mm-hmm. I would have never really thought about um, that, that the Alberta view of Canada is is just our view of Canada, because I mm-hmm. didn't realize Quebecers think completely differently. For them, the country started in 1608. For us, it started in 1886 with mm-hmm. the railroad. For Ontario, it started with the, you know, with the sort of 18, with the 1840 rebellion. Yeah. And for others, it starts in 1867. Like, what, what Canada is for people is when it starts for you. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and it's a mosaic, people who <laughs> think differently. So I, none of these things, I wouldn't have started in, in political advocacy to try to uh, to try to promote Canada as a world-leading source of environmentally friendly energy. All of these things came out of that. Um, if I was going to do something different, I think the mistake that I, if I was going to fix one mistake in Quebec, is when the environmental opposition started, I would have immediately said, okay, stop. Let's just put a hold on this. Mm-hmm. But it's hard when you're running a public company to go to your shareholders who are all excited about the fact that they're going to make all this money out of this massive discovery mm-hmm. made, and then say, well, just wait. But it's been an example of the hurrier we went, the behinder we got. And um, it would have taken a lot of courage to tell our shareholders we're putting a hold. Um, and I didn't have it at the time. And knowing what I know now, I would have had that courage and said, stop and don't press this forward with the population until they're ready. And, and that's the tragedy of all of this. I mean, I know people may want to vilify, you know, oil and gas CEOs, but a lot of these are, are not the giant, giant, giant corporate entities. These are businesses that are relatively small in, in some senses. And when you look at that, I mean, the number of 
companies that would not exist, the number of people that would not be employed, the number of people that could just pick up and say, I'm just going to focus on Utah. I'm just going to go to the United States. I'm not even going to worry about Canada because it's too much of a hassle. That's a real tragedy in what the government's doing here. Well, what's Canada's strategic advantage? Well, this is what I feel passionate about mm -hmm. from a national perspective. This was just my own company. Is that, you know, we we are a country with with massive resources, very few people that need them to use mm -hmm. them. And we have the shortest trade routes to Europe. You, to, you know, don't, I guess don't count Russia for some obvious reasons mm -hmm. right now. And maybe let's just leave Norway out. They can't supply it itself for now. United States and Northern Asia. Mm -hmm. We're in the catbird seat. Canada should be talking now. It's it's time. You know, the people said the 20th century belonged to Canada. Well, it didn't really. It belonged to our senior partners, and we were the junior partner, punching above our weight in World War II, we Korea, and, and peacekeeping, and 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 now now maybe on global environmental issues. But you know, we're looking to try to be world leaders there too. But but always as a junior partner. Mm -hmm. But where we're at right now, we could be the senior partner. The American, European, and Northern Asian communities. India, we have decent trade routes to India even. They need what we have. And if we were astute about our strategic advantages in the world, we would step up as the senior partner. If you don't treat us well, e. you won't get what you need. And we have what you need. And you should want it from us. We're responsible. You know, like, you know, with the, with the, with the speaker really just, you know you don't need to send the, the National Guard to Canada, right? So uh, you can count on us to be reliable, but not only that, socially responsible. It's not just that you can count on us, unlike Russia right now, you can't even count on them to deliver mm -hmm. on contracts. For, for So it's not just that you can count on us to deliver on a contract and keep our, our agreements. You can count on us that we use the profit of that not to fund terrorist groups. We use it to build hospitals, to build a better society, to, to build a culture that's aligned with your values. So why would you want to deal with anybody else? And why aren't we taking that and making Canada the senior respected partner in the world? Because everybody knows we need Canada. As a uh, clarion call to Canada and its leaders, people should listen to it. Michael Binion, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. That was my interview with Michael Binion. We'll have the next part of the Unjust Transition series tomorrow here on The Andrew Lawton Show. But I do want to just wrap things up here because I have to get to uh, court. We're pre-recording the show this week just so we can uh, keep everything fresh and I'm not missing anything that's going on in the courtroom. But I, I wanted to share this interview I was going to last week and then everything got kind of sidelined when the federal court decision came in that found the Emergencies Act to be unconstitutional. And it is a bit of a holdover, a leftover, I should say, from my time in Davos covering the World Economic Forum annual meeting, which I believe we are going to go back and do the next one of. So I've had some people asking already. I think we're still trying to figure out the accommodation situation, which, as you know, is always the most annoying part of that process. But I think we can make it work without having to do some like cross-country commute every day that will uh, you know have us in the cars on the mountain roads. But anyway, I I've complained about the commute too much already. I, I wanted to go back to uh, the basics here, go back to first principles and talk about the why and why we started covering the World Economic Forum in 2022, why we went back in 2023 and again this year and are likely doing so next year as well. And it's simply put because no one else is doing it well. And I know there's a bit of arrogance inherent in that to say, oh, well, you know, we're doing something that no one else in the world is able to do. I would say it's that no one else in the world is willing to do. There have been considerably few players 
that have decided to go up and, you know, talk to the global elites, to put a microphone in the face of the Queen of the Netherlands or the CFO of Google or Mark Carney or whatever, and ask these questions that matter to people but often are never asked because no one who's ever in the room with them wants to ask because they want to just keep getting invited back into the room. So there's something rather blissful in not being in the room in the first place because you don't have anything to protect. You have nothing to lose except your integrity, which is only going to be lost if you don't go and do the work that people around the world, I think, need you to do. So uh, that's a bit of a wind-up to why we went there. And we have been joined by some other independent journalists. There was uh, a lovely Japanese YouTuber last year, uh, Masaka Ganaha, that I met and actually appeared on uh, her show uh, talking about Davos. And also Rebel News has sent, uh, I think, increasingly large crews every year. So I caught up with Avi Amini and Ezra Levant on the streets of Davos to talk about why it is they're there as well. Take a look. Well, as I've been saying throughout all of my content this week, you never know who you are going to run into on the streets of Davos. I've spent a great deal of time chasing after some of the big elites, people from all walks of life here, including Steve Sedgwick from CNBC, although he's been, he's been friendly to us riffraff out here on the streets. <laughs> uh, but look at it, look at Rebel chumming around with the mainstream media there. Well, uh, two of the guys that we've been in some foot races... My, two of the guys that we have been uh, in foot races with chasing after some of these figures are right here with me. Avi Yamini from Rebel News and the Rebel Commander himself, Ezra Levant. Uh, this is, I mean, Avi and I, you and I were, were here in 2022 working for, for different outlets, but we had kind of a, a good uh, camaraderie going on here. What's your read on kind of the experience then versus two years later? I reckon uh, it's a lot busier. I don't know if there's more VIPs, but there's definitely a lot more people and that you can see that on the street as well as in the car parks, for example, you just can't get parking. So that's that's the main difference. Uh, the focus is is pretty similar. Uh, maybe not on the signs, you see the AI is, is, is really dominating the, the discussion on, I guess, the featuring on all the signs, but the discussions are still uh, climate change and um, sustainability is the buzzword in town, which always feels Fun because it's a second word. It's a second sentence. It's a second word in every second sentence here uh, when they just don't get the irony of it. Do you think, Ezra, that the influence of the organization has gotten greater or lesser in the last couple of years? And, and do you feel their security, the security they feel about their position, has changed in that time? Well, I think the best thing that ever happened to the folks who come here was COVID. It gave uh, a huge boost to international companies, which are the bread and butter here. There's no small businesses here. This is transnational corporations. This is Amazon. Jeffrey Bezos' personal wealth doubled during the lockdowns because everyone was at home. They had to, we interacted with each other through tech. And a lot, there's a lot of tech here. There's a lot of pharma here. Now there's a lot of AI, which worries me because there's a lot of censorship here too. I mean, I can tell you Twitter is not here, but Meta and Google are. And so I would say that the WEF has been strengthened enormously in real measurable terms. Financially, they had enormous success in terms of political power. I mean, there are there's royalty here. There's prime ministers and presidents here. This year, President Zelensky of Ukraine, the Israeli president, the Argentine president. Uh, in terms of public perception, yes, there's been more criticism of the World Economic Forum too, but what do they care? Avi scrummed, and you were in that same scrum, what am I saying? The two years scrummed Dr. Tedros Adenham, uh, the head of the World Health Organization, really the globe's Anthony Fauci. 
and you guys landed a few punches on him verbally. But what does he care? He can't be fired. He can't be voted out. To you, it was like ants at a picnic. I mean, he looked down and you said, oh, ants. I mean, he, what does he care? Most of the people here are democratically immune. They're a permanent class of ruler. That's how it is. We are back. Part of the fun of Davos is that you never know who you're going to run into, as I said at the top. And we took a moment because uh, we thought, uh, well, no, not we thought. You guys saw someone that you wanted to do a bit of a, a reprise on. So you had to, to scurry away. But we're back. We're as, as standing as close to original positions as possible. But we're honest media. We wanted to acknowledge the cut and not fool you by throwing some B-roll over it. Not that we've ever done that. Uh, so <laughs> before we broke away, Avi, I was going to ask you about uh, your sense here. Because one thing that I found a little bit interesting is that a lot of these folks are not used to being questioned here. But this year, they seem to be a lot more skeptical. I'm seeing people hiding their name tags. I'm seeing people cross the street. I don't want to say it's because of you and I. I think we may be contributing, though. Do you agree? I certainly am. <laughs> yeah, you are. And it's funny, because we have different styles, You're which is polite. fun. You're polite. I, don't, I think if I wasn't here, you'd probably get away with it. Yeah, because I like I think Tedros would have like spoken to me, but then you like go in there and like go for the jugular right away and he just shuts down. But that's part of it. And and these people are not used to being surrounded by critical media, are they? No. No, and and, and you're right. Like I think there is the uh, you know, I've seen even other people, and, and, and it should be mentioned, there's a lot of people that come in here that come up on the side and go, oh, amazing work, we love what you're doing, good on you. You know, they're probably just opportunistic and using the, the, the event as a networking. But, you know, people have seen us running up and down, scrumming um, political figures or business figures or any, any of these. So I think the word certainly got out there, and I think it also got out there in, in past years. Wasn't it last year when... You actually got accredited. It, it had suddenly listed the second year to um, to actually hide your identification when you came in, out here. And I think that was from our first year of being here, you and I. Yeah, so Ezra, I'll ask you where you think the future of this is. Because there are a lot of people that really I've not been able to get to answer the question that has really been burning on my mind, which is what do you get out of it? I want to hear some of the business figures say what is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to be here, and I want to hear the politicians say what it is. Now, I have my own suspicions, but I've yet to get an answer from that. I suspect whatever they've gotten out of it in the past, they're still getting out of it, and in that sense, it'll probably continue all of this, won't it? You know, as you walk up and down the streets, you overhear a snippet of a conversation, just a second or two. Let me give you two snippets that I heard today, hand to God. We made $400 million off that. $300 million loan. Like, just little snippets. I don't know who they were, what they were talking about. That's what I overheard, and you probably heard similar things. Now, some of the talk is just puffery and BS and people trying to climb up the greasy pole. But there is no denying that the net worth and the amount of assets controlled by the people here is in the tens of trillions. BlackRock itself controls 10 trillion, just one company, that's Larry Fink. And like I say, there's presidents and there's royalty. So what do they get out of it? They have an elite gathering, much of it hidden, there's no transcript, there's no hand-sert, as we call it. There's no question period, there's no official opposition. Um, the media is tightly controlled. What do they get out of it? It's a private playground where they can frolic and do their dirty deals. In Canada, Christian Freeland came here, met with McKinsey, ta-da! They got a nine-figure contract from the Canadian government. That's what they do here. And so I think they would like to ban citizen journalists. 
Now, I don't know if Switzerland will go along with that. Let me give you a quick anecdote. Um, I scrummed someone from the Rockefeller Foundation, which I think is a very legitimate thing. She's a public person who has been spending tens of millions of dollars in Canada to disrupt our oil and gas economy. So she ducked into a pavilion, and a security guard came out and said, You! Out! You! Go! Now! Move! Well, I know a little bit about the law in Switzerland, not a lot. And I said, No. I said, you go get the cop. And he walked over to the cop across the street. I could see them talking, 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 talking. And nothing. Just because some security guard doesn't want me talking to a VVIP, the Swiss police couldn't give a damn. As long as, and I, and I later walked over to the cop and said, hey, I just want to tell you my intentions. He said, as long as you don't touch people. Actually, he, he, he said it slightly differently. But, um... I think that you might see the World Economic Forum try to uh, keep citizen journalists out. I don't know how successful they'll be. All right. Well, I think we're going to continue covering it because no one else is, and clearly the audience loves it. I know that we are from different outlets, but I think the more independent journalists doing this, the better. So, Avi Amini, Ezra Levant, thank you so much. And Ophi Thank you. That was Avi and Ezra on the streets of Davos. Well, it was also me on the streets of Davos. Now I'm on the streets of D.C. So another... Uh, <laughs> actually, that's a, there's a weird question. I wonder where the people... Uh, where, where Who you'd rather spend time with, the people of Davos or the people of D.C.? I would say the people of D.C. Because uh, D.C., you can find some normal, real people here. Davos, there are very few of those. Now, I shouldn't say none. I mean, the, the people that live, that work in Davos are, are good, but they're not the ones who live in Davos. And they, they would never call themselves Davos people like uh, Christopher Freeland and Mark Carney and all of them will. But anyway, uh, that is it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Andrew Lawton Show and another update from the great climate-free speech trial of the century here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.